Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Son, our Savior. We thank you that in the fullness of time, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full acceptance, the full belonging sense to our God. Lord, we worship you this morning. We pray now that as we open your word that the Spirit of God would open our hearts, that you would help us to set aside those distractions, those things in our own lives which would hinder the work of your Spirit. Give us ears that would be attuned to the still, small voice of God. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How many of you like contests? A few. Perhaps some of you have been participating in the contest that we've been offering here at Calvary. You've been using the Calvary app on your smart or your dumb phone these past weeks as you've been tracking through a number of scriptures related to the Christmas story. Some of us are more prone to contests. We'll enter any free draw that's possible. And just even the hint of a possible prize would incentivize us to participate. When it comes to scripture, what is the greatest contest that the Bible portrays? What is the greatest contest in scripture? I would suggest to you this morning that it's the contest between good and evil. It's the contest between good and evil, between God and Satan. This morning we're going to be looking at the final series, or final a sermon on the series of why the royal visit? Why did Jesus come? Uh, in my own family, I have family members who, are, who get all excited about royal visits. I have relatives in northern Ontario who remember gathering his children beside the railway tracks as the king and his bride came by on a train many, many years ago. And then, of course, the interest of our own world has been gripped with the recent engagement of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. You might have heard of that one. Or of the upcoming birth in April of Prince William and Kate's third child, and already a number of people are engaged in that whole process of speculating about what the name of that child will be. Will it be Alice or Amelia or Alexandra? And already people are so intrigued by that and captured by the royal visit. But the most spectacular royal visit is the one that is described for us in the pages of Scripture. A friend of mine this past week posted on Facebook, a thousand times in history, a baby has become a king, but only once in history did a king become a baby. It's a remarkable event that we have been celebrating in these recent days as we celebrate the incarnation, the wonder of God with us, Emmanuel. So let's review where we've been through the month of December as we've considered this theme and the other pastors uh, of the church have, have, have led the congregation, led us in this study. Why the royal visit? Jesus came, first of all, to bring hope. He of the hope bringers is king. He is the prince of peace. He offers hope to a hopeless world. Jesus came to bring truth. He is the truth. He speaks truth. He represents truth. How amazing it was that there was Pilate, the judge presiding over the trial in which Jesus was standing, 
And here was the judge asking the question, what is truth? Rather remarkable question to be put to the audience. Thirdly, Jesus came to serve and to give his life. What a servant, what a sacrifice. He came to lay down his life. And what a model he was for his own early followers and for us as we not only trust him as our savior, but follow him as our Lord and, and model our lives like Thomas Akempis did years ago as he penned this book, The Imitation of Christ. Fourthly, Jesus came to bring salvation. He is the savior. You recall the birth announcement given to Joseph there by the angel, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And as you look through the family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you certainly realize that his people needed saving. His people had sin issues, just as we have sin issues in our lives. And yet God in his mercy, God in his grace, sent to us a Savior. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace upon those upon whom his, his favor rests. And God's favor rests upon us as he brings to us salvation. Through the word of God, by the spirit of God, as he brings Emmanuel to us, God with us. Well, this morning we're looking at Jesus coming to destroy the works of the devil. And the focus of our study, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 3. I've selected one verse, and I'd like to challenge you to, to memorize this. I'd like to challenge you to really reflect and meditate upon particularly verse 8, where John one of the early followers of Jesus is summarizing or is really crystallizing for these followers the, 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 the central purpose of Christ's coming. The whole theme of 1 John is knowing God. We may know him by experience. We may know not just about him, but we may know him. There's a big difference, isn't there? You can know about God or you may know God. And John writes to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that they might know that they have eternal life. He's the same author who wrote the Gospel of John. John 20, 30, and 31 summarizes for us the purpose that John had in writing the Gospel. We'll come back to that a little later on. Where John selects some of the miracles out of the life of Jesus and says there, there are many other miracles, other signs that Jesus did which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. And then this is really part two. First John, if you turn to chapter 5 and verse 13 just for a moment, this is, this is the PS. This is the follow-up. This is the discipleship appendage or PS to John's ministry where he writes, I write these things to you who believe. These are people who are Christians. These are people who've already committed themselves to Jesus Christ, who've understood that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And John says, I write these to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's all about assurance. It's all about a series of tests that we may evaluate. But looking back now in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, look at this declaration he makes. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The devil has given evidence of his true nature by his rebellion. 
By his defiance, knowing God's demands, knowing God's standards, he has defied God's standards with a high hand. He's rejected God, and he's been sinning from the beginning. The reason, John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We'll come back to that text, which really capitalizes and and crystallizes the focus of our study this morning. But let's go back to the prediction of this conflict. The first reference, if you have your Bibles, again, turn back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Perhaps you bought yourself or someone gave you a, a Bible for Christmas. And as you open a book, like you open any other book, you open it to the first page. That's just a normal way to read literature, isn't it? And as you open up to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, what do you discover? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the big event. Genesis 1 and 2 describe for us in careful, meticulous detail God's ordering of creation. Out of nothing, God spoke the universe into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We won't take time. Pastor Rick in months ago led us through a study, but let me just highlight for you some of the the activities of God in chapter 1. If you want to see God at work, read through Genesis chapter 1 and select the verbs those action words that we were taught to pick out when you're analyzing a sentence. What is God doing? God is creating. God is speaking. God said. God saw. God called. God made. God is at work. And after creating various parts of the spectacular universe which we enjoy today, our world, and all its beauty, we have this analysis or this assessment by God of what he had made. And God saw that it was good. And then as you come to chapter 2, you have, you go from the panoramic view of creation down to a very narrow focus as God creates the first man. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and so chapter 2 unpacks those details and we see uh, the, the the perfect couple God creates Adam gives him responsibility and again you can read through the details and then he he creates Eve as a helpmate as a partner for Adam in this wonderful paradise this perfect environment in which they've been placed think about it the perfect couple in the perfect neighborhood what could possibly go wrong I'm sure many of us look around at couples even getting married and a lot of weddings pastor Nick you're gonna be busy for a while I think even in this church and you think it was a new couple beginning life together and you think they they're just perfectly matched they're the perfect couple have you ever used that description of a couple And then you watch them as they develop and they acquire property, maybe starting with an apartment and they get a house and you think that's just the perfect house for them. And you ask yourself, as we ask ourselves in reading Genesis 2, the perfect couple in the perfect neighborhood, what could possibly go wrong? But that ignores the reality of sin. 
In, in, in chapter 3, we have the fall. We have this serpent who is more crafty than any of the wild animals that God has made. And the serpent slithers into the story with a voice. And his voice is the voice of rebellion, as it has been and always will be. He is all about questioning God. He's all about directing people away from God, of breaking fellowship with God and with other people. That's what he's good at. The devil has been sinning from the beginning, stirring up rebellion. Rebellion. And as we read through Genesis chapter 3, again, just to highlight it briefly for us this morning, in verse 6, you have Eve who has been seduced or invited to participate in this violation of God's standard. You see her following the pattern, the template, as it were, for all sin. She saw, she desired, and she took. And you see that pattern running again through Scripture again and again and again, and that's what you and I do, isn't it? That's the same strategy. We haven't improved much on the strategy of rebellion against God. We see we have the, the, the appeal to our desires, and that's really where the battle begins. And as we desire it, as we focus our, our, our minds and our attention on what is forbidden, and we begin to pursue it. And then we cross the line when we take it. When we go against what God has required, when we eat the forbidden fruit. And so that same pattern again and again occurs when we are dis discontented with what God has provided for us. We, we follow those same steps. What does James, one of the early followers of Christ, say in, in, in the New Testament? When tempted, no one should, should say, God is tempting me. Uh, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Uh, I, I come from a, f a family of trappers and hunters. Uh, that's not been my lot in life, not my interest, but I've had a father and grandfather and other relatives who love it. And there is a bait for every animal. And the traps vary in size, but they're all successful when they capture the animal. Put out the right bait in the right conditions, in the right place, you'll have your prize. That's how Satan works. God does not tempt us with evil. We are tempted when by our own evil desires we are dragged away and enticed. Then, James says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. It, it, it just progresses. It, it grows. It develops. So as we come in Genesis chapter 3, here is the prediction of the conflict. God comes into the garden having known, having observed the sinfulness of Adam and Eve, the choices they'd made, and he comes into the garden and he's, he asks the question, Adam, where are you? And of course, Adam gives his explanation and tells why he's hiding, and then God questions him and asks him, what is this you've done? Will you accept responsibility for your choices? And Adam 
looks around and thinks, well, who could I blame? And there's his wife, like some of us men. And he says, well, it's the woman you gave me. He's not only blaming Eve, he's blaming God, isn't he? And then God says to the woman, what's this you've done? And, and she, she looks around and she sees this slithering snake. And she says, well, it's a serpent. And then God begins with the serpent, and in this remarkable prediction of the conflict, he says in verse 15, I will put enmity to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Here's the first prediction that there is going to be a conflict between God and the Son of God who will come in the form of man, Emmanuel, God with us, and as the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, steps on the head of the serpent to crush it to death, that serpent will lash out and strike at the heel of the one who will crush it. So here, here's this anticipation. We're, we're barely into the first few chapters of the Bible, and there's this anticipation, there's this prediction of this huge conflict. But, but the story doesn't end there. The story unfolds, and, and, and as you walk through the pages of Scripture, the story of Scripture is is really the account or the story of spiritual conflict, isn't it? Book after book, page after page, character after character, you see Satan at work disrupting the people of God and others, disrupting nations, disrupting families, disrupting individuals, and stirring up rebellion, and yet, praise God, God is moving history forward. History is his story, isn't it? History is God's story. It's the story of what God has done, of God's incredible mercy to rebels. And yet throughout history, what is Satan doing behind the scenes? Sometimes in very overt and sometimes very covert, sometimes openly, sometimes in a hidden way, he is disrupting, seeking to disrupt the plan of God. Uh, we're to pray, aren't we? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if we're under the authority of God, we are committing ourselves to do the will of God despite the opposition to that will by Satan. And so as we come to the New Testament, turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. We have here the account, of course, the, the, the account from, from uh, Joseph's perspective, the, the, the family tree. Genealogy matters. Uh, it's important if you are in a Jewish uh, legacy. And so Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus, and he traces it, interestingly enough, Matthew 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Interesting, isn't it? Abraham, the friend of God, but a man who struggled with honesty. David, the man after God's own heart, yet a man who committed sexual sin and compounded that sin with murder. And then the various characters in the account in the family tree of Jesus 
demonstrate so clearly to us that, that the people of God need rescue. They need saving from their sin as we need it so desperately today. And God sends Jesus, the Savior, the Rescuer. And so we have Joseph's account in Matthew 1 and 2, and then in Luke we have Mary's account. But turn with me quickly to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. This is the spiritual warfare account. Look at the intensity as the writer of Revelation describes for us this conflict. I'll just introduce it for you briefly. I challenge you to read it. Revelation is, is the last book of the Bible. We know that. It's the last book of the New Testament. And the author, using very dramatic language, apocalyptic literature, there are strange characters, there are strange uh, creatures that are showing up in this text. And look what happens as we have this remarkable spiritual warfare account of the birth of Jesus. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. All right, so here's a woman about to go into labor with the birth of her child. Who is this? Well, hold on. Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. I'll, I'll leave the pastors to sort that one out for you, who that is. But look what happens. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman. Here's this woman about to give birth. And this fierce dragon is poised ready to devour the child. That doesn't sound like a typical nativity scene, does it? But that's what was happening. As Satan watched the mercy and grace and love of God unfold, he was working behind the scenes, waiting for his opportunity to destroy this child at birth. Read about Herod. King Herod, read about his wonderful activity of murdering so many in his own family, compounding his sin, compounding his guilt with the slaughter of innocent lives like so many even do today. What a picture. The dragon stood in front of the woman. She gave birth. She gave birth to a son. Who is this? A male child. Oh, it's a clue, isn't it? Who will rule all the nations. Sounds like Christ. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. God protects the baby. Gives notice through a vision to the parents to whisk the child off to Egypt. We know the story. Here's the apocalyptic version. The woman fled into a into the desert to a place prepared for, for God, by God. Pardon me. Verse 7. There was war in heaven. All hell breaks out, as it were. The conflict is intense. Now that Christ has appeared, the forces rallied, mobilized against Christ are all in. Just like, this is beautifully decorated this morning. Thank you, ladies and others who've helped decorate this auditorium 
But we're at war. It's so lovely. Christmas is so lovely, but it's a reminder we're in a conflict. If we could really see behind the scenes as to the conflict, the spiritual struggle going on in lives and families and churches and in communities within our country and the countries of the world, we'd see Christmas differently. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. God sent Christ into our world to bring to a pinnacle this intense conflict to demonstrate to this serpent that his time was up and that the seed of the woman born as a helpless child would one day die upon a cross and in his death crush the head of the serpent. That's warfare. That's the way the Bible describes it. I'll leave you to finish Revelation chapter 12, but it's remarkable how the author portrays this this conflict. We know it's Satan. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, who leads the whole world astray. And there's victory to those who follow the Lamb. There's victory to those who are under the authority of his Christ and who overcome the devil, verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The devil is all in. The question for us is, are we all in with Christ? When he comes knocking, when the devil comes knocking, how widely do you open the door? Give him a foothold and he'll move into your life. Open the door to him in your family, he'll move right in, perhaps through technology, perhaps through some unguarded pattern of living. Well, what's the purpose of the conflict as we draw this to a close? As you come into the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, the the four accounts of the amazing story of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the highlights, just quickly, just to get you to prime the pump, I'd encourage you to go back and read it and read it again with this perspective. The highlights, you have Jesus brought into the desert to be tempted by the devil, led by the Spirit, remarkably, isn't it? Led by the Holy Spirit of God into the wilderness for a showdown. And having fasted for 40 days, he's hungry. And as he comes out of the desert, the devil is right there watching him and says to him, if you are the Son of God, literally since you are, you have this capacity, I know who you are, command these stones to be made bread. What did Jesus say? It's written. Friends, that's the only tool we have. That's the only authority. We have no personal authority. Don't take on the devil in your own strength. You will be defeated. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. The devil tries again, and then at the end of Luke, it says, he left him for a more opportune time. He was not done with Jesus, nor is he done with you or with me when the season of warfare goes into a season of peace. You may just be in a lull between conflicts. That happens in war, doesn't it? No active bullets are flying, no bombs are dropping, but the war is not over. I haven't heard of a ceasefire with the devil. And so the purpose of the conflict intensifies and you have Christ confronting the devil's strategies even in his own followers. 
Peter, who one minute says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, read about it in Matthew 16, turns around and in, in, in the very next breath, resists the cross. And Jesus turns to him. This is his main man. This is his main leader who he's training and preparing to lead a discipleship movement. What does he say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not of God. Wow, Peter, the voice of truth and the voice of error. Or how about Judas, who who just loved, who was motivated by money. He'd do anything for money. Some of us are tempted by money in that way. And as he goes to the enemies of Jesus and he discovers that he can can make 30 coins, a handful of change, if he'll just betray his master with a kiss. So he pockets the money and then he feels so bad afterwards, doesn't he? He's filled with regret and he goes out and he weeps. But it's not repentance, nothing changes. He just regrets really that he's been caught. He didn't think it would go this far. The situation got out of control. Anybody been there? The seeds you planted grew into something that you couldn't manage anymore. So what happens? What's the rest of the New Testament all about? He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Three quick things as we draw this to a close. The letters, the remaining letters of Paul, Peter, James, and John unpack for us the purpose of the conflict. Paul tells us that in Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15, if you want to mark that down, that Christ disarmed the powers and authorities triumphing over them at the cross. The victory that we've been singing about and celebrating with such passionate worship this morning was won at the cross. Satan was ecstatic on Good Friday. Christ was dead, but Sunday was coming. And up from the grave, he arose. And Christ died for our sins, yes, according to the Scriptures. He was buried true, but he rose again. He conquered sin and death and hell, and in him we have victory. Amen? Amen. What does Peter say? Peter, who'd been a voice of the devil, Peter says to those who are following Christ, resist the devil. Your adversary... The devil, like a roaring lion, walks about, paces about, looking for those he can destroy. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of situations are being faced by your believers around the world. What does James say? James says, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Now as we come to 1 John to draw this to a wrap-up, Here's the challenge. The stakes are high. Yes, we're in a beautiful auditorium this morning, but the the spiritual reality that is pressing in on all of us is the fact that we're at war. And the weapons of mass destruction that the devil plants in our lives are ready to do a lot of damage unless we stay close to the Savior. 
unless we follow him. And so I am going to ask you this morning, so what? What do you do? What are we to do with this? We had this conflict predicted. We had this pinnacle develop as you see in the fullness of time, God sending his son into our sin-cursed world, sending a helpless child, born of a woman, born under the law. And the shepherds find Jesus in a manger, a cattle trough. And this same Jesus grows up and resists the devil. He, he, he could say to his accusers, which of you accuses me of sin? He, he said, like none of us could say, I always do those things which please the Father. Not one of us could say that. Praise God we have such a Savior. But we must line up with him. We must come under the authority of Jesus Christ. We must put on the whole armor of God, join us as the worship team leads us, and calls the church, calls us collectively to rise, put on our armor, and face the challenges in 2018. On Sunday morning a number of years ago in the church in Toronto, the pastor we sat under was preaching on this very topic. At the back of the church that day, an older man who we thought was one of the most godly men in the congregation shook hands with the pastor and said to him, thanks for that challenge from God's word. The devil never gives up. It was a good reminder to those of us who were young that there is no place of ease. There is no place when you can say the last struggle has taken place. The reality for us this morning is that we are in between, living in between two royal visits. As you read through 1 John chapter 2.28 to chapter 3.10, and I urge you to do that. In chapter 2.28, John looks ahead, looks into the future, and he talks about when he appears, there will be a second coming. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords will come again. And John says, because of that, we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So we're called to commit ourselves to holy living to resisting the devil, to walking in the Spirit, to keeping in step with God. And we do so because we look into the past and we recognize that he appeared. Christ did come, Emmanuel, God with us. He appeared, verse 5, so that he might take away our sins. And then our text, which I urge you to meditate and memorize, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was that he might destroy the devil's work. Friends, it will not be automatic. We must line up with the plans of trusting and obeying. Let's pray. Father in heaven, by your spirit who led John and James and the other authors of Scripture to pen these words, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight.
Help us to pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man will see God. Father, on the crest of a new year, we don't know what lies ahead. But we look up in simple faith. Our eyes are upon you. And we pray that every single child of God in this auditorium this morning will commit themselves to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory and praise. Amen.